everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. And we have a really wonderful lineup for you today. We're going to be talking to Matt Ho, who's been on the show before. He's a beloved guest. He's going to be talking about the Iraq war. He is himself an anti-war veteran who served in Iraq. We'll get more into his biography shortly. But I also want to just remind everyone to like the stream. That's a really easy way to support the show. Just give it a thumbs up. That gets the word out there about the show. Also, make sure you subscribe. To do that, you just hit subscribe and then the bell. Then you don't miss any of these streams. If you would like to, and you can, please do become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And that gives you access to extended interview and bonus content. So from last week, for instance, we have a great extended interview with Norman Finkelstein and Barbara Smith and Robin G. Kelly, where they debate identity politics. We have extended interviews with Christian Parenti. We're going to have extended interviews, Michael Hudson, also with Richard Wolf, who's coming back on the show. I shouldn't tell you that. It should be a surprise, but I just gave it away. And again, you can do all of that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For just $5 a month, you get basically twice as much show. If you can't do $5 a month, but you just want to help make the show happen, you can do that at Patreon by becoming $1 a month member. So that's just $12 a year. And that helps make this show happen. It really literally couldn't happen without your support. You can also become YouTube members and you get special badges and emojis. So I'm going to bring on our first guest. Matt Ho ran for Senate as a Green Party candidate in 2022 in North Carolina. In 2009, Matthew resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Prior to his assignment in Afghanistan, Matthew took part in the American occupation of Iraq. He is an 100% disabled veteran and was certified by North Carolina as a peer support specialist for mental health and substance use disorder. You can go to his website at Matthew Ho, Matthew Ho, that's H-O-H, dot com. So without any further ado, welcome, Matthew. Hi, Katie. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me back on. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. And this week, of course, marks the 20-year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. That's not something that is to be celebrated. It's to be mourned and commemorated. But I thought you'd be a perfect guest as someone who fought in Iraq and also really changed your mind on the invasion of Iraq and occupation of Iraq. Could you tell us about your trajectory as a soldier? Sure. It was a long one. And I think when I went to Iraq in 04, I was coming out of the Pentagon. I was a Marine Corps officer on the Secretary of Navy staff. So I was a, a fly in, in the room. I was a, you know, a small bump on the big log kind of thing. I saw a lot of things that people my age at my career point didn't usually see, uh, as well as too, I, I'd already, the war had already become very personal for me. I was, I was a White House liaison officer. And with that, I had to contact all the families of the Marines killed in the first year of their war on behalf of the White House. Uh, so it became very personal for me because there's a whole other story, but the Marine Corps really did a 
poor, poor job. And that's being very polite about how it handled the casualties from that war. So going to Iraq already in 04, at that point in the spring of 04, it was very clear that we had been lied to about this war. Abu Ghraib had come out. Uh, the first battle of Fallujah had taken place. And I went there thinking that, well, I don't know if I believe in this war. I don't know what we're doing here. This may be a huge mistake. I wasn't calling it a crime at that point, but it certainly was. But my attitude was, I can make a difference. I can be, uh, you know, in my personal space, I can do well. I can do good for others. And, and that was a, just a, an absolute fallacy because you think you can be, you're going to be your own agent. But the reality is, is that your own little morality matters nothing in the grand scope of the war. And you become an agent of the war's immorality. Uh, you know, and then my continuance with the war, uh, you know, I, I go back again and then I, I work for the State Department. I'm on the Iraq desk at the State Department. I end up going to Afghanistan as a political officer with the State Department. That's when I resign and leave and put the wars behind me and start following my conscience, I guess. So it took me a long time to get to that point to have that courage. The the uh, idea, though, is that you lie to yourself over and over and over and over again. You rationalize it. You make excuses. There's no better institution at making excuses for what it does than the U.S. military. You talk to the men and women in the military, they will say, and they will honestly believe this, I'm not a policy maker. I'm a policy executor. That's above my pay grade. All these things, absolving yourself of responsibility, and that goes up to the highest levels. I can tell you when I met with Ambassador Holbrook when I was resigning from the uh, State Department in 2009 over Afghanistan, he said that. He said, this is the guy who's the senior most person in the U.S. for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he says, well, it's not my responsibility. It lies with the He excuses. He absolves himself of all responsibility. So it's the lies we tell ourselves. It, it's, it's the uh, rationalization, the excuses. But then also, too, those little lies, those individual lies feed into the much larger lie of the war. And those crimes against ourselves, of course, are nothing compared to the crimes against the Iraqi people, the Afghan people. And of course, by extension, the Syrian, the Yemeni, the Libyan, the Somali, all the African people that have been victims of these wars for the last 20 years. Was there an aha moment that started to change the way you saw your role? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think it was just this continual onslaught of having to lie to myself, of having to like defer, having to say, well, you know, I'm a junior guy. I'm a mid-level guy. By the time I get to be a senior guy, I'll do things differently. Because even when I was in the Pentagon, and I was sitting in the Secretary of Navy's office wearing my nice khaki and green uniform and drinking my Starbucks coffee and taking the bus into work and everything like that, I was in contact with my friends who were in the fleet, who were in Iraq at the time. And so I was reading the intelligence. I was seeing what uh, they were telling me. You know, they were emailing me, you work in the Secretary of Navy's office. What the hell is going on here? Do you know? You know, that kind of thing. And then seeing what the senior level's of the Department of Defense were saying about it, what the White House was saying about it, what the press was reporting, that disconnect. And again, you lie to yourself, you rationalize it, you excuse it. Till you get to the point like I was, it took me many years, but you know, finally I'm so morally and intellectually broken, you know, I, I quit, I, I leave it behind. But there are so many, uh, there's so much conditioning, there's so much institutional loyalty that is bred into you. And then our, our culture as Americans, you know, you grow up. You know, I'm old enough that I grew up when we still had black and white Westerns on, you know, Channel 5 and Channel 11 and Channel 9 in New York, right? You know, you, you watch these John Wayne films. So all that, not, not only is what the military does to you, it's what their society does to us, to condition us, to keep us within that bubble. 
right? And then, of course, you join the Marine Corps. You want to be loyal uh, to the Marine Corps. You want to be loyal to your friends until finally you are nothing but a piece of meat being used in the war to de- degrade and destroy others. And, and you know, and it was rare. And I want to say something really quick because I think it's very important w- what myself and I work for an organization called the Eisenhower Media Network. It's, it's fellow veterans who advocate for, you know, restraining, if you will, uh, U.S. war making, who advocate for reducing the military budget, who advocate for a diplomatic foreign policy rather than a military foreign policy. Uh, none of us are doing this because we want people to emulate us to say, oh, man, those guys had it right. Why didn't they listen to those guys? You know, and I go back to what the author Tobias Wolf says. Uh, he was in the army as an officer during Vietnam. And in one of his memoirs, he writes something about it's, this is very cutting to a lot of us. Isn't it very uh, uh, peculiar to America to have young men go overseas, destroy other people's homes and then ask you to feel sorry for them? Right. So I want to make it clear that as we talk about this, I want to center the Iraqis as much as possible. And this is not an exercise because you do see this where, oh, you know, it's, it's the, Amer- the Americans are learning from their mistakes. Look how much character they got out of this, you know, and so forth. I mean, I think that you can hopefully do both. Right. I, I mean, I do think for better, for worse, I often think that like different things can be almost like gateway drugs and you reach people where they're at. And I think that for a lot of people, it's it's messed up. For, for a lot of people, they're more sympathetic or they feel like an American story resonates more with them. That's obviously not a view that I have. But I think that once you kind of shatter the paradigm or the worldview that says that American lives are more important, I think you can do that sometimes by sharing what it's like for an American soldier. And then once people are now, I think, more open to, to questioning their worldview, then I think they can start to see the humanity of people in other countries. Exactly. And one of the things with the military is you're completely conditioned not to see the other people as human. I mean, it's a whole, uh, it's, it's a rigorous, thorough process that is scientific. It is, it's, it's, it's academic in its origins into how the military, particularly the Marine Corps and the army uh, condition their young men uh, to be in the infantry, to be in the combat arms, to have this kill mindset, which is what you have when you're over there. But that doesn't hold up very well when you see the reality of what you've done, when you hear a mother's cries, when you see a, a kid with his guts hanging out, like, I mean, a kid, like an eight-year-old kid, that all evaporates pretty quick. And this comes actually to something that's important if you want to talk about the American side about this, is the moral injury piece. Uh, many people are familiar with the high, high rates of suicide among veterans. This is true throughout warfare. This is true. You go back, the Romans and the Greeks write about this. Shakespeare writes about this. I mean, this is something that has been known for centuries upon centuries, that war is destructive to the soul. When people come home from war, they kill themselves. You see that the VA does a very good job of hiding this data. Before 2012, the VA didn't even put out a suicide report. Before 2012, the VA wasn't even collecting nationally the number of veteran suicides. But after 2012, they start to do that and they start to have this idea. And this is where you start hearing about 22 veterans a day killing themselves. It's, it's now about 16, uh, not because the rate's gotten better. It's because so many World War II and Korean veterans have died off. There's just a lot more or less veterans out there. But, you know, it's just, this idea of moral injury is that you have transgressed. And it's such a transgression that you have ripped apart your moral foundations. And it produces such distress, such despair that suicide becomes 
the only way out of it. And the way I, I relate this to people is if you go back and you remember Shakespeare, you remember Lady Macbeth, she has the blood on her hands and she can't get it out, right? That's what you're talking about here. That type of guilt that changes your mind, your, your soul, and ultimately leads to your own downfall. You know, that's, that's what many American veterans go through. And that's why you have, if you go and you do pull apart the VA data and find out what you can, you do see among Iraq and Afghan veterans, rates of suicide four to 10 times higher than their civilian peers based upon age and sex. So, I mean, you do have this, this horrific killing by suicide among American veterans. But again, if you return back to what the Iraqis are going through, what they're still living through, uh, it is just absolutely gargantuan. It, it, it belies our ability to understand uh, what that experience is like, just in terms of how the scale of the destruction of society. And we should say that the destruction of Iraq doesn't begin in 2003. You have under the Bill Clinton administration, you have sanctions that murder half a million people at least. Uh, people are very familiar with the famous Malin Albright quote, where she's asked whether or not the sanctions that are killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children are worth it. And she says, yes. And then years later, as she's, she's, she's trying to recover from that gaffe, as her and her ilk would describe it, she is, she is upset that she was asked the question or that she'd answer it correctly. It wasn't about whether or not that number was true or not, which shows that that number was true. Let alone also, too, during the Clinton administration, we were bombing Iraq every third day. For eight years under the Bill Clinton administration, American warplanes dropped bombs on Iraq every third day. You go back, of course, to the first Iraq war. You go back to the Iran-Iraq war, which kills over a million people, devastates entire cities. That was an American proxy war. You go back to the 70s. In 1972, the Nixon administration starts uh, uh, funding the Kurds, sending weapons to the Kurds in Iraq in order to destabilize the government in Baghdad. So like I said, I was born in 1973. So if I was an Iraqi, my entire life, the American government has been trying to destroy my country through violence. I mean, and that's the reality of the Iraqi people. And of course, we can get into the numbers in terms of the scale of what it means for them, as well as what it means going forward. Because even if we had a magic wand, Katie, and wave this all away, make the political violence stop that's still occurring, say, dozens of Iraqis are still killed every month in political violence. I'm not talking about soldiers or, or militia forces or ISIS members. I'm talking about regular people being killed every month, political violence. Even if we made it all go away. We have poisoned their water and their land like we did in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam, and their children are dying every day because of that, and they will die for generations. Well, uh, let's see. I actually want to show that. It's, oops, sorry. I want to show that clip of Madeleine Albright, and then I want to get to those numbers that you just referred to. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children then died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Not that hard of a choice, apparently. No, no. And the idea was that they were going to uh, starve and abuse uh, the people, and they, this, that somehow they were going to cause then an uprising and it will cause the regime to fall. And this is, this is the argument for sanctions that are used all around the world by the United States. Uh, you know, it, it, the United States uh, sells more weapons to anyone else in the world. We sell weapons to more than 100 other countries. Many of them 
or dictatorships or uh, military regimes or monarchies. In fact, if you look at the list that Freedom House puts out, which is a State Department-funded organization of the nations that are not free in the world, the United States provides weapons or military assistance to nearly three-quarters of them. And of course, the nations then that don't buy our weapons, those are the weapons that we sanction. Most famous, of course, being Cuba, which we've been sanctioning for uh, 62 years now, I believe. Uh, you know, but, And then other nations where you have seen the same type of horror occur to the population. Venezuela is a great example where the, you, know, you, you get this semantics from the Washington, D.C. types where they say, well, no, the sanctions allow for medica- medicine. But there's absolutely no way possible for a government or government like Iraq, uh, like, say, Cuba, or Venezuela, to purchase things like medicine because the way the sanctions work, it doesn't allow them to buy anything because of the way it shuts down the banks, the, the money transfer systems, et cetera. And so you have this really uh, slow and cruel way of, of punishing a people because we don't like their government. This is an act of war. In previous generations, previous centuries, the way you did this was you sent your warships to their harbors and you blockaded their harbors. There is no fundamental difference between our economic sanctions as an act of war now and blocking somebody's harbor 200 years ago as an act of war. And of course, that was the lead up into the American invasion in 2003 was that this nation had been starved and deprived for a full decade, more than a decade, I believe the sanctions lasted for 13 years. And so, and it had had no effect on achieving our results. And all it had done was to punish the people who had done nothing. So let's talk about some of those numbers. We have the cost of war project estimated that over 550,000 people have been killed in Iraq and Syria since 2003. Some estimates put the death toll in Iraq at over 2 million And of course, today, the U.S. still has some 2,500 troops in Iraq. So the casualty numbers that Cost of War Project uses for Iraq come from an organization called the Iraq Body Count, and they've done really great work. They started a few years after the American invasion. The idea was to document as many uh, civilian deaths as possible. And they have always said, this is a conservative estimate, treat this as a baseline. Because the way the Iraq Body Count works is they use media reports to count how many people are being killed. And particularly, they only use English language media reports. So right away, you see how this is going to be an undercounting. But also, too, if you've been to these wars, if you understand them, no, not every dead person makes it into the, the newspapers. It just doesn't happen that way. So, you know, that, that number, and I, I believe the number of Iraq body count has is between 250 and 300,000 Iraqi civilians killed. That number is multiple times that. And the cost of war project, in their report, if you read their, their full report, they say straight away, first couple sentences, we estimate the number, the true number is at least three to four times higher. So you're looking at a million people killed at least. There are very credible studies that put the number at two million. Uh, we know uh, the latest numbers I saw for refugees in Iraq that were come out of 2021. And at that point, there were eight million uh, people who were still refugees, whether uh, outside the country or internally displaced. Uh, that comes out something like uh, an equivalent number would be about 75 million Americans who would be displaced now, who would be homeless now if the same thing had happened in the United States. That's how massive that is. Uh, It's hard to to figure out how many people have been wounded by this war. I can tell you one of the things about the war for the American side was that we were protected by body armor. We were protected by vehicle armor. Uh, We had this medical care that was 
uh, you know, no, no, no army had ever seen the medical care we had. We survived things, explosions, attacks that would have killed us in the very early days of the war. When I was first there in 2004, the vehicle I rode in had an armored door. Someone had welded an armor, armor onto it. I didn't see my first armored Humvee until I think maybe August or September of 2004, so a year and a half into the war. We then had these armored vehicles plus the body armor that allowed us to get hit by explosives that we just shook off. We walked away from. When I came back my second time from Iraq commanding a company of Marines and sailors, I had some Marines who had been blown up more than 10 times in a seven-month deployment. And they seem fine. They're not fine now. They have traumatic brain injury. Uh, the, the VA estimates roughly a quarter million, is probably a low count, a quarter million Iraq and Afghan veterans have traumatic brain injury, most of that from explosive blasts. That gives you an idea of the scale of the violence. Now, of course, the Iraqi people did not have the body armor we had. They did not have the vehicle armor they had. They did not have the medevac flights. They did not have the combat surgical hospitals. They did not have lawn stool, a five-hour flight by C-17 away. They had nothing. So the scale of this is really unknown. And then, of course, I spoke earlier about the veteran suicides, but the mental health aspects for the Iraqi people, again, unknowable. I've seen things that estimate PTSD rates at 50 to 60% for the Iraqi people, high rates of anxiety, depression, other types of, 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 of problems, but you just don't know. Um, but again, you get, you get down to this, 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 the notion of how grand, how massive this destruction was on top of the destructions that have been current, the, 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 the violence that have been current against Iraqi people for decades. And I think you get some idea of what a shattered people they are. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the violence that has been perpetrated against them and that continues to be perpetrated. And of course, the important thing is, I'm glad Cost of War Project does this well. I was just upset. I sent a, an angry note to the Hill a couple of weeks ago because many in the United States will say the Iraq War, uh, they'll leave out everything before 2003, and they'll say it only goes to 2011 because that's when the American combat troops pulled out December of 2011. That's when the Iraq War ends. And after that, it was this thing with the Islamic State that the United States had to jump back in, but really wasn't connected to anything, which is just complete nonsense. How can you think that people do? The Hill, big newspaper in D.C., publishes it that way. Fired me. <laughs> That's exactly right. So a double pox on the Hill, right? You know, but um, I forgot about that. But, um, you know, I mean, but the uh, seeing that, though, and, and the destruction that occurred, the further destruction that occurred in Iraq, following 2014, when the Islamic State conquered most of North and Western Iraq, the United States Air Force and Navy destroyed every city in the Euphrates and Tigris River Valleys, west and north of Baghdad. Every city was level. If you look at photos of, say, Mosul in 2017, it looks like a photo from World War II. It looks like you're looking at Berlin or Stalingrad or Tokyo. That's what the United States Air Force and Navy did to those cities, uh, how those people ever recover, let alone having a full telling of what occurred to them. And again, what is occurring, uh, the numbers just listening the other day to a, 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 a couple of, of, of people, uh, the estimates are still that one in five Iraqi children are being born with deformities or being stillborn because of the poisoning of their land and water by the American war in their country. And that's something that doesn't end. It, it continues. It gets passed through generations. And uh, it really is uh, absolutely her. I mean, I, I keep repeating myself here, but I'm not sure how else to articulate this. 
because it is a horror that we we can't even pursue to presume to know here. I'd love to have you back on with my mom who wrote a historical fiction novel called When You Come Home about three generations of war and the, the latest generation is the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And she actually has deals with Gulf War syndrome, which of course is something that people dismiss as a conspiracy theory. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's the you know, the the case, the 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 betrayal that comes on this. One of my colleagues who spent time, a lot of time in the, the Pentagon, uh, was there for a lot of the meetings that occurred, uh, left the Air Force because of the Iraq War and went to work helping wounded warriors. But, you know, he he was there for a lot of discussion in 2002, 2003. And the, his book is entitled Betrayal. Uh, you know, I mean, and that's exactly what it was. And it always occurs. It happens over and over again. Happened to the, the Civil War veterans felt they were betrayed. The ones on the Union side. The World War One's veterans felt they were betrayed. There are a lot of World War II veterans. The Ken Burns uh, story of World War II and its veterans is just simply not true. True. The Tom Brokaw nonsense about the greatest generation, simply not true. It's all meant to f- make us feel good. Uh, Steven Spielberg movies, you know, sell some books and make us believe in this American mythology, this American exceptionalism. This uh, indispensable nation, as say Madeleine Albright, or maybe it was Hillary Clinton who described us that way. And this allows us to go around the world, uh, stomping, say, throughout the greater Middle East, throughout the Muslim world for the last 20 years, killing millions of people, ruining tens of millions of people. And at the end of it saying, you know, well, we, we did our best. My friend Peter Van Buren, who was a State Department officer and who got fired from the State Department for writing a really excellent book on the Iraq war called We Meant Well, and it's a tongue-in-cheek satirical title. Uh, you know, says it best. We get away with by saying, oh, we meant well. We meant well. And it absolutely, we, we didn't mean well, not the senior leaders, maybe some some stupid, cowardly people like myself who went along with it meant well. But, you know, I can tell you the leadership did not mean well. We have another video that Brad just set up for us. This is of George W. Bush. The setup here is he's talking about Putin here, right? Right. To launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Right. Anyway. And there's laughter after that. People think it's funny. I mean, within a year, I think it was a year, maybe within 18 months of the invasion, and already you've had this horror show occurring. Uh, George W. Bush was in front of the, uh, uh, what's the, every year they have the, the gala in Washington, D.C., the press thing, like a prom, basically, for those people. Right. It's like a prom. Yeah. And they do. And they, you know, my, my late, friend Michael Hastings wrote about this really well, this, this type of this bullshit, right, that exists where journalists are chummy with the politicians they're supposedly adversarial with. It's all a show. It's all, it's all for theater. And But anyway, he makes a joke. I think it was within a year of the invasion uh, where he's walking around the stage, looking, put, picking things up, looking under chairs and saying, no, M- no WMD here, no WMD here. I mean, and they all laugh. These are the journalists who sold the war, right, who made it so popular, who fired anyone who got in their way of telling this grand story of this great American crusade to liberate the Iraqi people. How, Right. I mean, and, and so you see that. Uh, uh, but I think the point with Bush is he's a sociopath. And I think that's something that we have to come to terms with. I think we're, we're reluctant to do that. I think we can look back in history and say, that's how it was. And But with our generation, we don't like to do that. But our leaders are sociopaths. They are able to say the right things in the right moments. 
to uh, portray themselves as being sympathetic, portray themselves as people of character. All these presidents, all these secretary of defense stances, all these secretaries of state, they all say how they don't want war. They all say how they want peace. And they're lying. They're up. They couldn't care less about what happens to these people. They're sociopaths, and they get to these positions because they are sociopaths. And I think Bush exposed himself. He's he he trips himself up, and then he moves on. Though it doesn't really phase him that you know, and he's going to go now and 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 do whatever he does. Go and throw out a pitch at the, at the next Rangers game. Maybe he'll get a chance to go and dance with Ellen DeGeneres again. Everyone will tell how great he is because he's painting these watercolors of veterans that he sent over there to kill and be killed, uh, you know, and so forth. It's really nice of him to paint the people he sent to their deaths and, and sent to kill others. Yeah. Right. Right. Can we talk a little bit about how much of the war was, uh, had already been planned before nine 11 and how nine 11 just was used as a pretext? I, I think there's an awful lot to that. People are familiar with Project for a New American Century, which was the uh, headquarters, if you will, of neoconservative thought in the late 90s. Uh, there is this, it, it comes out of the end of the Cold War, this desire for a unipolar world uh, a, a, to simplify a belief that the United States should do whatever it wants, control whatever it wants. Uh, and that uh, is infectious. You also have two, I and mean, this is very important, I think, as you look back on it. Uh, go back about 30 years, 93, 94, you start having uh, people like uh, Samuel uh, uh, Samuel Hutchinson writing- Huntington. Huntington, thank you. Writing Class of Civilizations, right? Francis Fukuyama's End of History. And they are depicting the mood of the foreign policy establishment of American leaderships, how they perceive themselves in this new world order. And so that really informs- me in terms of who these people were and what they wanted. And then when you get to the individuals, I think they, for as many different individuals as there were, there are different reasons for why they wanted the United States to destroy Iraq. Uh, some saw it as a way to, to leverage and hedge against Iran. Others thought it very, and I, I, I think this one was something that doesn't get spoken about as enough. enough. Others thought that by taking out Iraq, uh, you take away the biggest benefactor of the Palestinians. Uh, you then threaten Syria and Iran, and that forces the Palestinians into a position where they don't have uh, any support, makes it better for Israel. Uh, I mean, so you have a lot of these different explanations, uh, and you certainly have those who just believe the American, who believe in the ideas of freedom and democracy. You have these true believers, uh, you know, and then you just simply had those who were megalomaniacs who believe the entire world should be the color uh, of the United States on a world map. They view it like a game of risk. Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of those things that on September 11th were present. Uh, that were, uh, ha were And so when you see this, when you see, I can't remember if it was the day of the attacks or the day after the attacks, Don Rumsfeld saying to Stephen Cambone in the Defense Department, make the connection to Iraq, make the connection to Iraq. Within weeks, Central Command, the United States Military Warfighting Organization for the Middle East, is being told, get ready. They're giving warning orders, basically. What do we know about Iraq? How do we do this? I mean, the planning begins almost right away. Bush himself, uh, he, says, uh, 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 he, he, he says to his counterterrorism czar at the time. Was it Richard Clark? Richard Clark. Thank you, Katie. Uh, Richard Clark uh, he says, you know, what about Iraq? 
And Clark says, this has got nothing to do with Iraq. Saddam Hussein is an enemy of Al-Qaeda. They would never work together. Bush says, I don't care. Find me something. And of course, I mean, so you did, you had this, this desire for Iraq. And then of course, you can't, you can't deny the implications of the oil, uh, right? One, you can't deny the relationship between the Bush family and the Republican Party with the Saudi monarchy. I mean, the day or two after uh, the 9-11 attacks, uh, the American president and vice president are smoking cigars at the White House with the Saudi Arabian ambassador. Uh, I mean, like, I mean, you have, so you have this collusion, this connection, uh, this, and then you have also to the American oil companies. You have Dick Cheney representing that. Dick Cheney has his very famous energy task force, which is secretive in the first year or so of the administration. And one of the things that does come out in some leaks is a map of Iraq that is divided up, and you can't make this up, is sectioned off where Exxon gets this, Chevron gets this, you know, uh, whoever gets this, uh, you know, Shell gets this. You know, you, you see that type of, so you have all of these things that provide this underlying foundation that just allows for this inertia. And then there are experts at the political side of it. You have Karl Rove, who saw the benefits of the Bush presidency of going to war and the way they then pushed that up against the weak and craven and, and, and really just, uh, 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 I don't want to curse about the Democrats, but how the Democrats were in 2001, 2002, and you get a war, uh, you know, as my friend Norman Salmon says in his excellent film, a war made easy. And now he's working on a book, I think, War Made Invisible. Right. Yeah. I bet it comes out soon. Yeah. A month or two. Yeah. He's a big fan of yours, by the way. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, one one clip I was trying to find it. I can't find it. All I can find is like a very amateurish clip that I made where I kind of reacted to this. So we're going to have to play that because I don't have the initial clip. But it's unbelievably, it's of Ari Fleischer, who is Bush's spokesman. He is talking to... Chris Matthews from Hardball. And let me just play you what, what he actually says about 9-11. After September 11th, having been hit once, how could we take a chance that Saddam might not strike again? And that's the threat that has been removed. And I think we're all okay. safer with that threat being removed. And I okay, so just again, he, he says, after 9-11, having been hit once, how could we take a chance that Saddam might strike again? The implication being that he had already struck. Yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite masterful. Yeah, it is masterful, right? Because he's like, having been struck once, if he hadn't said, how can we take a chance that Saddam might not strike? If he hadn't said again, it could have technically been truthful, but obviously very misleading. But let's check out. After September 11th, having been hit once, how can we take a chance that Saddam might not strike again? And that's the threat that has been removed. And I think we're all safer with that threat being removed. And I am. Okay, Chris Matthews, this is your moment. You say, what do you mean with strike again? He never struck in the first place. They were. What did Iraq have to do with what? The attack on the World Trade Center. Nothing. And nobody's ever suggested in this administration that Saddam Hussein ordered the attacks. <sighs> These guys are such idiots. Uh, we no longer argument. have an administration that uses that kind oh, of argument. Thank you very much. Show me that smile. Ooh, show me that smile. Ari Fleischer is the worst shit-eating friend I've ever seen. Anyway, I got the date wrong for when Bush had said that. He had said that earlier, um, that there were, that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with uh, uh, 
I mean, I just got the, I just labeled the video wrong, but the important piece of information is that he said, already said this. And here we are, Ari Fleischer saying this years later. And Chris Matthews, not even challenging him on that. Right. Not even, um, no, I mean, and they don't though. They don't. I mean, and to this day, you, you have uh, uh, journalists who just refuse to be anything other than stenographers or cheerleaders or they don't want, you know, I mean, it comes basically comes down to they're all friends. They don't want to not get the White House Christmas party invitation. You know, I mean, it really, it's really it's, it's access journalism. Uh, and then now it's even worse because it's so partisan. Uh, they, they, they have to play to their partisan viewership. So, I mean, now they're not going to insult, you know, you might have, uh, uh, but you know, the thing about too, what, what Bush says though, and this is where I'll disagree with you when you call them idiots, where they're not, they know what they're doing. Yeah. I, I meant Chris, I think Chris Matthews oh, okay, maybe yeah. in that moment was just being an yeah. idiot. You're right. No, yeah. no, no. Like Ari Fleischer is evil. I think Bush is both evil and idiotic, but not as idiotic as people, as he likes to pass himself off as. Right. I, I think there's a, a, a cynical manipulation of his, Oh shucks! Don't you want to have a beer with me at a barbecue? Type of personality that, uh, but you know what they've done is they've created such a narrative. If you go and you look at the media these last couple days about the anniversary of the invasion, uh, you see media, journalism, news networks talking about faulty intelligence. That's completely not true. You know, it was the problem with the guys on the third floor at Langley who didn't give them the right information. No, I mean, there, there is, is so much documentation that the administration purposely picked out the information it wanted to. It, it excluded all types of context, all types of details, all types of counterfactuals. If you ever go and look at the National Intelligence Estimate for 2002 on Iraq, which was the document the White House pointed to to justify their invasion, it's the one that hardly any members of Congress read. Uh, you know, I think only about eight of them read it before they all authorized the, you know, the United States to go to war. Uh, you'll see that there's such extensive documentation in there casting doubt, very serious doubt on the validity and legitimacy of any of these accusations. But because they've been so rock solid and consistent in their narrative, once they got caught with the lie, They've been doing this for so many years now, 15 some odd years or longer, where the reflexive answer, the reflexive notion about the Iraq war is, oh, the intelligence was wrong. No, this was a deliberate decision. They manipulated, they cherry picked, they lied about the intelligence to get the invasion and the war that they have wanted for a very long time. And you rarely see journalists push back on this. They just, they themselves will say, fault the intelligence. You know, that's too bad, Colin Powell. He was such a great guy. He was so dignified. Doesn't he look like the dad that you always wanted to have? You know, uh, it's so bad he was given the wrong information and really humiliated himself at the UN like that. What a what a set. No, this is Colin Powell was lying about the Milai massacre, uh, you know, uh, uh, 35 years before that. Uh, so, uh, you know, but but it, that you can see how, again, masterful they are at getting what they want and creating a narrative and a story that 20 years later is still the way the Times, the Post, CNN, et cetera, will describe it. 
Yes, and we have some questions for you, but we also have very exciting news, which is that we have a special guest joining us, and I'm so excited. And he really needs no introduction, but um, I will just give you a little bit of one, which is that he is an American politician, a U.S. representative from Ohio from 1997 to 2013, and a presidential candidate for the Democratic nomination uh, in 2004 and 2008. And we are going to bring on to the stage none other than Dennis Kucinich. Hi. Hey, Katie. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining. Good to be with you. Thank you. And this is Matthew Ho. I don't know if you guys know each other, but Matthew is a very brave and uh, hardworking anti-war veteran of both the Iraq War and the Afghanistan Wars. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. It, it, it's, it's good to be here with you, an honor to be here with you. I just talked, I don't know if you heard, I was just talking about the National Intelligence Estimate in 2002. I, I heard it, and I was one of the- One of the few, right? I actually yeah. read it. Yeah. So, um, and again, um, Congressman Kucinich, it's such an honor to have you on the show. You have a wonderful piece at Sheer Post and also at your Substack. Uh, it's called Iraq Plus 20, Lies as Weapons of Mass Destruction. Can you tell us why you wrote this piece and what you um, pointed out in it? Yes. Uh, when Right after 9-11, uh, I was hearing this chatter around Capitol Hill that the administration was considering attacking Iraq. And you know, at first, it was hard to believe, even though, as Matthew points out, you know, there were meetings early uh, in the Bush administration's term where Vice President Cheney called together oil companies, and, you know, there was already talk about carving up Iraq. But why? You know, what was the, uh, they didn't even establish a pretext. Well, what happened is that uh, as it became obvious, the administration was trying to make a case that Iraq had something to do with 9-11, and therefore the war would be a payback for 9-11. And what they did uh, from 9-11 on for the next year or two years was to conflate 9-11 with Iraq. And and over and over and over, the president did that on the one-year anniversary of uh, the 9-11 attack in New York City. He, he just brought them right together. The uh, I, I researched everything that was going on. I looked at, uh, as a member of Congress, I looked at, uh, before the vote, I, look, I looked at all available intelligence. I looked at national, um, uh, the uh, national intelligence estimate. And what I saw was there, there was no case whatsoever for what the administration was purporting. So I wrote a report, an analysis of the Iraq war resolution for members of Congress. Uh, I distributed personally over a period of about six days to 250 members of Congress. And what it said was essentially this. Number one, uh, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, with al-Qaeda's role in 9-11. Iraq didn't have the intention or capability of attacking the United States, and there was no evidence they had any weapons of mass destruction. So I passed it out to members of Congress and make sure you read this before you vote. I was able to help organize 125 Democrats who voted against uh, the war, and, and we had one independent, Bernie Sanders, vote against it. Um, and, and I will tell you that uh, that was about 60% of the Democratic caucus. So we had a real viable push among Democrats in opposition to the war. But, you know, they had the votes. They went forward anyway. And why was that? Well, I think that, you know, Republicans were following the, the lead of the White House, which, the you know, the political parties generally will support the uh, president of their party. And uh, the media, 
uh, dutiful spear carriers. They, they were supernumeraries in this uh, grand pageant towards war. Uh, they uh, parroted, you know, chapter and verse, the White House's line uh, that tied Iraq to 9-11. And then from there, uh, they helped Bush build a case to go to war. And, uh, you know, so the media bears responsibility. But when you look at it, um, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, uh, Secretary Rice, um, Secretary uh, Rumsfeld, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, Karl Rove, on and on, they all played a part in pushing this plan forward to go to war against Iraq. People are talking about the arrest of Donald Trump right now and the indictment of Donald Trump. Do you think that uh, Bush should be indicted for war crimes? Of course. I mean, this isn't even a close question. And I offered articles of impeachment where, you know, this is where Congress and the United States government handles matters within our own house. We don't have to go in an international tribunal if we can handle this uh, uh, within uh, the U.S. government. Most people aren't, aren't aware, by the way, that Congress is a co-equal branch of government. It's first, the first among equals, Article 1. And Article 1, Section 8 reserves the war power to Congress. But, you know, it had been usurped over and over again, except this case, Bush went to Congress for, uh, for permission. And once he got it, uh, you know, look out. But I think that as we, uh, as we move through history, here we are 20 years later, what happened in Iraq was a monstrous crime against humanity. You know, Katie I, and, and Matthew, I just want to show you, this is all t- uh, weathered. Uh, but I, I used to carry this in my wallet. Right now it's kind of falling apart. But I kept track of the number of uh, speeches that I gave on the floor of the House against the war in Iraq. There was 341 uh, through six Congresses and, um, and 155 against going to war in, uh, against Iran. I was consumed by this because I understood this was a monumental injustice to the people of Iraq. You know, we've created over 5 million orphans, over a million people killed, uh, whose lives were shortened as a result of this war. Uh, incalculable amounts of damage to, to Iraq's uh, property, rending the social structure of the country. I mean, this, and it was all based on lies. And I knew this then, and I certainly know it now. And those who were responsible must be held accountable. I put dozens of, of, uh, of, of resolute, you know, of dozens of articles of impeachment against George Bush presented in the Congress in July of 2008, articles against Cheney. Chapter and verse, we, we nailed it. I mean, I, I presented an indictment. That's what the uh, articles of impeachment are. They're an indictment. And we, the, Demo- the Democratic leadership, when I, after I presented it, read four and a half hours on the floor of the House. They had it referred to committee. So I, I think that we, we have to have a reckoning in this country about what happened in Iraq because we're doing it again. I mean, the same ne- neocons or their uh, uh, emotional, psychological, and spiritual uh, errors are about the work of, of Russia, you know, creating a war with Russia, pivoting from Russia, attacking uh, China. They're even putting a time clock on it now. Three years from now, we're going to go after China. How stupid is this? I, I mean, the, if this was a B-movie, people would walk out halfway through. But unfortunately, this is the government of the United States. 
and it's moving forward for more war, more conflict, and it's about time that they were exposed as a bunch of fakers and charlatans who have taken this country down a path that is very dangerous that could lead to World War III, which, you know, there's not going to be anything left. So I, I think um, this uh, review of Iraq 20 years later is not just about Iraq. It's about America's role in the world. It's about whether or not we agree with an American imperium, whether we agree with a unipolar world, whether we want to accept that we are a nation among nations or we have this fantasy of being a nation above nations. If we try to maintain that fantasy, we won't survive. I was actually going to, I thought I was going to have to ask you guys to connect that war to today's war, but you just made that connection so clear, Congressman. Uh, Matt, do you have anything to add to that thread? One of the things I think you have to look at is it's the same people over and over again who are doing these wars. How uh, we can put Ukraine into a separate compartment or a separate box than these other wars when it is fundamentally the same foreign policy and military leadership that uh, created uh, and sustained in those wars for decades, uh, and particularly too when you look, I think, at the trajectory of American warfare, uh, particularly starting in the second half of the Obama administration, the desire to use proxies, the desire not to have the political cost of American casualties. I think once you you, you have that, remember the. The Afghan war is tremendously unpopular. Obama, uh, in his first term, puts stake, puts himself out there, goes to West Point, makes a big speech, sends 70,000 more soldiers to Afghanistan. This is his chance to show that the world that he's a better commander in chief than Bush. They can win the right war on and on and on. Uh, you know, and the thing that I, I believe doesn't make the Afghan war a political cost to the White House uh, in 2012 or, or 2010 is the fact that 10 million Americans were in the process of losing their homes. Um, but starting in that second Obama administration, you start to see a real shift in how the Americans fight their wars. The idea that you can use proxies or you can use contractors, you're going to uh, uh, use special operations or CIA or drones, all these secret types of things that you can't talk about. The American government can't even talk about if they want to. So those types of things, I think, are, are, are some of the legacy, and you see that very clearly in the Ukraine war, which is a, a proxy war being conducted by the very same people that were in power and put into motion and sustained uh, these wars for these last decades. What do both of you say to the, the argument that, no, in this case, um, the U.S. is Russia because the U.S. invaded Iraq and Russia invaded Ukraine. I've heard that argument a lot. So how do you guys respond to that? Uh, I mean, really, the, uh, when one understands the, uh, the recent history of, uh, of Ukraine, where Ukrainians uh, had elected their president, who was then overthrown by the United States in 2014. And when that happened, the United States provided money for Ukraine to mobilize their army to attack Eastern Ukraine, which was Russian speaking. And they uh, exacted about 14,000 uh, casualties, actually deaths of, of Ukrainians who happened to be Russian speaking. Uh, that story never gets told because the establishment practice in America has, went, has been to put Russia on a back foot through NATO and through the United States State Department 
and, and the Department of Defense, put Russia on a back foot, keep Russia occupied in Ukraine, use Ukraine. The Ukrainians are being used as pawns. I represented a very large Ukrainian community as a member of the United States Congress and supported them. I, I, went, to, I went to Ukraine and met with President Kuchma and journalists who were telling me about Kuchma's role in the murder of a journalist, okay, and, and stood with protesters in the square uh, uh, when, uh, when the Kuchma and his henchmen were going to clear them out, when people were camped in overnight, people in Ukraine believe very strongly for free, about freedom and liberty. And I stand with them in that. But what, what's happened is the Ukrainians have been played. And, and so Russia, their pawns in this attack on Russia, and the plan has always been pin Russia down in Ukraine, pivot, and then go after China. This is part of a larger effort by the United States to try to assert itself as the dominant uh, military and economic force in the world. And guess what? It's not working. It's not going to work. It is uh, doomed to failure. And the meeting that Russia has had with China, uh, uh, Putin and Xi meeting, has uh, basically uh, demonstrated that we've taken the wrong approach and it is disastrous. It's separating us from the rest of the world community and it won't be too long you know, let's talk next five years, we could be on the outside looking in with the U.S. dollar starting to drop in its uh, value and, uh, and, and the elasticity provides to the U.S. economy uh, as the world, you know, is, moves away from the dollar, that elasticity is going to be lost. And we're going to find ourselves in a dramatically different role because of this neoconservative, monomaniacal uh, uh, thinking that somehow we're going to rule the world. And it fits into the binary construct that defines American conversations, American politics, American media. Everything has to be uh, A versus B. Everything has to be red versus blue. And so we have this very simplistic, uh, Manichaean, as Congressman said, uh, structure of how we talk about things, where a third way or a third option or not having to be on a side uh, is, is, is really hard for people to even accept for people to fathom for people to get uh you know and this is the way propaganda has always worked and 20 years ago if you were speaking out against the iraq wars and how many times congressman did you get called you know an al-qaeda sympathizer or how many right you're saddam right you're, you're just you're just you're just giving out saddam bath party talking points you know like so th this is to be expected uh it is just the, the the nature of how warfare works how propaganda works it has always been this way. Many people are probably very familiar with the famous Her Herman Goring quote uh, from a, the Nuremberg trials when he's asked about this. And he just says, well, you just scare the, you just scare the people. You tell them that they're being threatened by an enemy. And you'd say if someone stands up and says, no, we're not being threatened, you call them unpatriotic and you shout them down. And this is how you get a war going. I'm paraphrasing. His, his, he was, uh, unfortunately, for a war criminal, much more eloquent than I am. But... Uh, you know, I mean, that's that that's the reality here of, of why you see such a, a tainted, limited discussion about the war in Ukraine. I mean, as someone who speaks out against the war in Ukraine, uh, the notion that why do I speak out against the war in Ukraine? Am I against the Ukrainians? No, absolutely not. I want to see the Ukrainians win. I want to see Russia removed to its 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 borders, uh, you know, but I don't believe the right pathway going forward a pathway that makes sense, a pathway that has any chance of success is to continue this war, 
right? I, sending more weapons, sending more money only prolongs a deep and awful stalemate that has strengthened Russia. And now Russia is in a much stronger position now than it was a year ago. And unfortunately, the Russians are now clearly saying they're not going to negotiate. Their spokesman Peskov just said that last week, reported in TASS. A military solution is what we believe in now. Up until February, that's not what they were saying. You know, and it's only, and, and it's because the United States and NATO and the Ukrainian leadership chose to win militarily in Ukraine, just as the United States did for how long in Iraq? We're going to win militarily in Afghanistan. We did this. One of the reasons I resigned in Afghanistan in 2009 is because we won't negotiate with the Taliban, even though the Taliban are coming in and trying to negotiate with us. I had two occasions where that happens and nope, deny it, say it didn't happen. We're going to win militarily. Well, when you do that, and you spurn efforts in negotiation, say, as we saw in Ukraine in the beginning of that invasion last year, uh, where the, you have reports from the Israelis, the Turks, from American officials, from the Ukrainians themselves, that there were negotiations occurring. We know there were negotiations occurring, and the Ukrainians pulled out. Well, when you spurn the other side and you say, no, we're going to win this militarily. Well, when you don't, this is what defeat looks like. You know, and that's what happened to the Americans in Afghanistan. That's what happened, you know, in a lot of these wars. But this idea that somehow there's only two ways about it, one side or the other, is, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for it. But it's very, very destructive because you can't have these conversations until it's too late. Well, I, I, if I may add, um, Katie, it's okay. Of course. Um, I think it's important to watch uh, China's moves here because uh, China is making overtures of trying to create a plan for peace in um, Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. doesn't like that. I understand that because the U.S. has no interest in ending that war. They're, they're ready to fight, as has been said, over and over to the last Ukraine, Ukrainian. And uh, what a tragedy visiting visited upon uh, the, the brave, the heroic people of Ukraine and their families. And, and when you see, I mean, there's such a lack of decency and compassion here. And I want to reflect that back to 20, 20 years ago. What, what, what hit me over and over and over, day in and day out, uh, you know, as I understood the suffering of families who lost somebody in 9-11, I understood the suffering of the families in Iraq who were losing family members, children who were losing parents, uh, uh, whole families wiped out in, in bombings. And, you know, if you have any sense of human decency or humanity, if you if you, if you care at all for, for just, you know, what the, what, the poet, what the poet called, if you have any primal human sympathy at all, how, how can you just say, well, oh, well, yeah, it happened, and, you know, we move on to the next thing. This is crying out for justice, what happened. And, and if, we, if we fail to address this, uh, then we, we make even easier uh, the the an intensification of war with Russia and an, and a war which a real uh, war with China that will at some point go nuclear. So this is why it's so important to talk about Iraq. We, we have not yet redeemed uh, uh, and, and, and sanctified the memories of the people who were, who were killed there, a million people. And, and when I would bring it up in Congress, it was like impolitic to talk about dead Iraqis. What? Are they not human beings? Do they not have the same uh, flesh and blood that we do? I mean, the human genome theory said that we're 99.99% made of the same thing. And yet somehow we evoked an outgroup, an enemy, 
and in the construction of that enemy, we dehumanize the people. And, 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 and in, a, in effect, we dehumanize ourselves. Yeah, something that we saw both times is the, you know, you're a Saddamist if you uh, oppose the war. You're a Putinite if you oppose the proxy war. And also Saddam and Putin are just like Hitler. That's another thing that we've seen um, recycled. And it's such a, first of all, it's so incredibly ahistorical. It's such a bad analogy for so many reasons. But of course, the people want to say that because they want there to be no room for negotiation because they they say the takeaway from, you know, Hitler is, you know, Munich, capitulation, um, uh, naivete. You can't negotiate with someone like that. And you have people on MSNBC uh, saying that, that not only is, is Putin like Hitler, but worse than Hitler. There's that famous Michael McFaul quote where he said something so offensive. He actually said that at least Hitler didn't kill people who like like uh, German speaking people. Right. Yeah. He said he, at least Hitler didn't kill his own people. His own people or spoke yeah. the same language, which was so ridiculously yeah. anti-Semitic, anti-Roma, anti-everything that all the people that he killed. But yeah, you have people saying this. Speaking of diplomacy, what's scary is that I always thought, not always, since the beginning of this war, I kind of thought if we can just show people that the United States blocks peace and negotiation and isn't interested in negotiation, once we can show that to people, they'll start questioning the whole logical premise of of this war. But then what you have are people are like, well, yeah, we can't negotiate with Putin because uh, that's just going to... He's he's not going to make any sacrifices. He's not going to compromise. So we're just going to let him have everything he has already. As if the, as if, endless war is a better alternative. Well, when people feed back to us what they hear in the media, and the media feeds back or feeds to the people what they hear from the government, you have a closed loop uh, of feedback, which inevitably locks you into war. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.